The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. He's a fellow with the Faith and Progress Policy Initiative at American Progress. He, his writing has appeared in the Washington Post, CNN, and Sojourners. He has a new book out, Just Faith. Guthrie, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. All right. So uh, first things first, how, how are you been doing with this, uh, this pandemic? You know, doing okay. I am grateful that I worked from home before the pandemic and well after. So grateful to be employed and um, grateful to be trying to do my part um, uh, through my job at the Center for American Progress uh, to kind of uh, address the pandemic um, and do our part in helping churches navigate it, which has been a big part of my job there. Now, you are a, uh, a recent convert uh, to, to Baptist. Uh, you, you grew up Methodist and went to Union Theological Seminary. Uh, why, why Baptist? Sure, it was a long journey for me. I grew up 
um, several generations of Methodists in my family. We had a uh, great grandparent, great great grandparent, I think, founded a Methodist church in Texas. And I grew up in Houston and was really into uh, church, <laughs> all things church, and especially my Methodist church. And I was, I was very proud when I went to Methodist College, American University in Washington, D.C., and was a part of campus uh, ministry there and then joined a Methodist church when I graduated in DC. But I slowly over time um, grew frustrated with the fact that I grew up in a church that was very accepting and inclusive. And as I came out as a gay man, I kind of, um, I felt in the churches, you know, very welcome, never got the kind of hateful message of exclusion. But I, there was this, um, the Methodist church has been in a decades long kind of battle over same-sex marriage and the dignity of LGBTQ people. And I was so tired of like having people um, vote and kind of discern whether or not my humanity should be recognized. And that while at the local church level, um, you know, I felt very included, there were these policies in, in the Methodist church that um, prevented me from being ordained or prevented uh, my marriage or prevent me from being married in the church. And so when I went to seminary, I took one kind of step outside the Methodist church and did my seminary internship at a Reformed Church of America slash United Church of Christ congregation, duly affiliated in New York City, at uh, close to Union Seminary. And I sort of started being like, okay, maybe I need to find a new spiritual home. And then when I moved to Louisville, uh, it was the opportunity to find a new uh, church home. And I came across Highland Baptist Church here in Louisville, which is the most beautiful, amazing church. Um, I, it's such a wonderful community, gospel-driven uh, community that that practices radical inclusion. And they'd already made the decision several years before I showed up to, to bless same-sex unions. And so I was like, this is where I need to be. This is where God is calling me to be in a place where my dignity is not up for a vote. I feel really included um, and able to, to join Highland in their um, prophetic Christian witness. And then when I just, when my now husband and I sat down with one of our pastors, it was no question that um, she would perform the wedding and that Highland would celebrate it and then ordain me as a deacon. So I've like <laughs> dove into uh, the water is pretty deep and really immerse myself uh, in this wonderful community here. I happen to have the unique uh, experience of being on a flight a couple years back uh, from the same town that the United Methodist uh, Convention was taking place in which they were having this conversation and this uh, conflict and debate. And you could just see it on the faces of everyone there that it was um, it was so painful for them to to be working uh, through this. Um, it was it was quite a unique experience and to have conversations. Of course, we could actually have face to face conversations with people then without masks on and sit close to people on a plane. But uh, you know that's another time that we long for. Um, you did pick uh, one of the most spectacular CBF churches, Highland. Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. How is this church um, emboldening your faith journey and your vocational calling? I'll get to that, that question. I just wanted to go back to the, the general conference of the Methodist Church. I went myself in 2016 to flew across the country to Portland, Oregon, 
where the, the conference was meeting. And it was so impersonal to see all these delegates from around the world voting and not having any kind of holy conversations or any kind of knowing the people whose dignity was being voted on. And so I've really embraced the kind of uh, congregational um, ethos in, in Baptist life and that like you knew, you know, these conversations are very difficult and you really have to know people and hear people's stories. So um, I love that uh, about Highland. And Highland has been such a healing community. There are a lot of people who I had to do my own healing through like, I, I need to make a change and I, I, I can't keep fighting this, this battle within the Methodist church. And so it's been healing for me and then everyone that I've met at Highland has had this healing story of being in much, much, much more conservative Christian spaces and then coming to Highland and discovering a different way of following Jesus. And so I, I just find this beautiful in my Bible. I lead a Bible study class as well for young adults. And everyone there is like, we feel like we have found a place where um, other people are walking the same walk we are. And then we're able to do, um, you know, shared ministry together in the community. Our church has been uh, pretty active in showing up for the protests since Breonna Taylor's murder by the police here in Louisville. And um, even though that's been kind of complicated because protesting during a pandemic is complicated, but we've been, um, that's just one way. We did this um, kind of socially distanced um, service in our front yard to nail crosses in to our front yard of all the different people that have been killed by police, black people who have been killed by police. And that was um, a pretty powerful witness and just one example of the way Highland is kind of living out our faith in the community. And I meet people, you know, since moving to Louisville in 2016, I meet people who have never maybe uh, been to Highland, but they've heard about it because Highland is this light in the community where people know we're, we're so engaged in social justice and appreciate it, even if they're not Christian or Baptist. As I said in the opener, um, you work for American Progress. Uh, for our listeners that aren't familiar um, with this organization, tell us a little bit about it and your work. Yeah, the Center for American Progress is based in Washington, D.C., and is a think tank devoted to building a more inclusive, just society for all Americans and works across many different domestic policy issues, such as a more just immigration system, criminal justice, um, fair courts, and then it also works internationally to um, affect U.S. foreign policy and make it more just and equitable and fair and respect human rights. And so it's working on so many different issues. And then the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative is working to um, try to advance a positive vision of faith in the public square that respects the religious freedom of all people. We work closely with a group um, that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty, another great organization uh, based in Washington, D.C. So we're promoting a positive vision of religious freedom that respects all people, respects um, that kind of fundamental value of what it means to be American. 
And the there are so many threats right now to that, such as the Muslim ban that this uh, Trump administration has enacted. That that is just a, such a blatant infringement on on religious freedom, and then the rise in anti-Semitism in our country that is that is really troubling. And then so we we kind of focus directly on religion, but then we also have touch points with all of our different policy teams to to see how people of faith are advocating for an immigration uh, just immigration policy. For example, I first actually. Before I joined the Center for American Progress, I worked at an organization called the National Immigration Forum, um, that, and I was the faith coordinator, which is how I first discovered uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, was working with Susie Painter, who was very active in our work for faith communities to advance a just immigration system. And so at the Center for American Progress now, we work with the immigration team, with the LGBTQ rights team, with our uh, team we just put out a video trying to uh, show how faith communities in a nonpartisan way can help protect the 2020 election, um, such as you know, uh, encouraging people to vote and exercise their right to vote, register, and also serve as poll workers because we're facing a poll workers shortage. So we, we focus on religion um, specifically and then how religion intersects with every kind of political social issue our country and world are facing climate. I should, we do work with the climate team that's trying to, uh, so many faith communities are active in addressing climate change. So there, I could go on and on about all the different teams. I probably missed some, but but that's what we're up to at the Center for American Progress. Sounds like y'all are busy. Uh, we are. <laughs> I can't I can't think of any, any major issues going on in our world, let alone America right now. So, um, so yeah, y'all must be bored. <laughs> um, you have a new book out, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. This work gives readers a wide open view of not a small movement within the Christian tradition, but one that claims over 35 million progressive followers of Jesus in America. You wrote, we need to use words. Christianity isn't about uh, getting untangled from conservatism without a proactively uh, litigating the cause in the public square. We are called not just to act for social justice, but to contest the hijacking of Christianity. What inspired you to write this book now? There was a specific moment that led me to write the book and then a kind of general feeling. So a specific moment was being at the headquarters of the United Church of Christ, a liberal Protestant uh, denomination. And it has churches all over the country. And I was in the, the lobby actually waiting to go upstairs for a meeting. And I heard someone come in off the street and say, is this a church? And the person at the front desk said, it's a church, but not that kind. And I was just sitting there kind of puzzled because this is like the headquarters of the denomination. And it's a, a general feeling that I've uh, experienced in my work all across the country and through the Methodist church that I grew up in, through my time in seminary in New York City, and now even at Highland Baptist, which is, we believe strongly in our faith as progressive Christians, but we're the anomaly and we're not like what you hear about when it comes to Christianity in the country. I, I tell a story in the book or recount a story in the book about Hillary Clinton as just one progressive Christian example who uh, I always gravitated towards because I felt so strongly about my Methodist faith and, and she feels very strongly about her Methodist faith. 
In fact, she just started a podcast where the first episode, she started a podcast this week and the first episode was all about her faith. And she said uh, previously that if she hadn't gone into politics, she would have become a Methodist minister, which is not a story you hear about her very much. But uh, now I've lost my train of thought. But um, anyway, there's just, oh, and she was at Riverside Church. This is what I tell in the book. She's at Riverside Church in New York City. And she says there was, it seems like there's only one way to live out your faith if you're a Christian. And she didn't mean voting for her politically. So it's just like all these progressive Christians I've met, and there there is a, a church not dissimilar to Highland. You know, it may not be Baptist. It may be, um, you know, a different denomination. But there are churches that are doing this work of love and justice and mercy in their communities in every large city in this country in most small towns there is a church um, where you will encounter this loving um, reconciling uh, version of christianity so we're not so much the outliers i actually think there are many progressive christians millions and millions of progressive christians across this country and so i'm encouraging people to be a little less defensive about we're not like those people or we're not fundamentalists or we're not, you know, always not, not, not. And to start talking about what we care about, which is, you know, loving God, which is what Jesus told us to care about, which is to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Well, I, you know, sometimes it's best in defining yourself that you talk about what you're not. Um, you know, it's sometimes when I explain CBF to people, I, I describe us as the unicorn Baptist and they have a really puzzled look on their face. I'm like, because we're moderate progressive and a lot of people don't associate those two terms with Baptist. Um, you wrote uh, progressive Christianity generally don't believe that following Jesus is about saving souls for eternal punishment from a vengeful God who paid blood ransom price by killing God's son, Jesus. We don't fear that believing in the right thing somehow determines our eternal faith. So, so what are the defining theological markers of progressive Christianity? Rooting, following Jesus and rooting our ministry as Christians and what Jesus rooted his own ministry in, in Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, I came to free the oppressed, set the captives free, proclaim um, good news to the poor in the year of the Lord's favor. I think it's living our faith, leaving judgment, whether that's uh, earthly, divine, eternal judgment up to God, and loving people here um, in the few years that we're given um, on earth by God to, to be God, be the body of Christ. We're called, you know, Jesus was always breaking down boundaries um, when he, during his ministry. And um, you just see it over and over again. I'm leading now uh, my Bible study through a, you know, verse by verse reading of the gospel of Mark. And every time, you know, people want to say, this is the rule. This is the hard boundary. This is where we draw the line. Jesus is like, you're missing the point. This, this, um, what I'm calling you to is so much bigger than that. It's beyond your imagination. And so I think uh, the markers of progressive Christianity are twofold. One, you know, um, crossing boundaries and, and not kind of saying who's in and who's out, leaving the judgment up to God. And then being the body of Christ through the transformation of the world 
resisting evil, setting the captive free, doing, you know, doing that work while with every ability that we have right now. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. You know, within evangelicalism, there seems to be several denominations to look to as the embodiment of conservatism. And people seem to know the names, the organizations, the pastors that wave the flag of this movement. Yet, when I think of progressive Christian movement, there's uh, there aren't a lot of names and organizations that come to mind, but you argued they're actually more consistently progressive Christians than consistently conservative Christians. What seems to be the unifying consistency among this movement? I wrote about, in that chapter, I worked with the Public Religion Research Institute to come up with a three-pronged test. And I, and I want to caution, and I caution in the book, I'm not trying to come up with a litmus test of what makes you progressive. I was trying to show that there are progressive Christians who fit this um, uh, definition, this three-pronged test, which was supporting immigrant rights, um, supporting um, reproductive rights, and supporting LGBTQ rights, which I picked those three issues for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of polling on them about religion because um, they often get mentioned, you know, the religious components of how people believe about those issues is a topic of national conversation. So there's good polling out there to, to measure. And then also you, I often hear that there maybe are progressive Christians that believe maybe in um, racial justice and they care about the environment, but they uh, don't support LGBTQ rights and they wanna criminalize abortion. And so I wanted to show that even on those issues where the religious right has been so loud about criminalizing abortion and denying the dignity of LGBTQ people, there are still a lot of Christians out there um, that, that don't fit that definition. And of course, there are Christians that are, are somewhere in the middle, moderate Christians. And I hope that we can come to a place of recognizing that there are uh, across the political, ideological, theological spectrum, there are people that take the Bible very seriously, that take discipleship very, Christ, uh, you know, take their Christian lives very seriously and fall across the spectrum. You said that there's uh, a limit to how much individual denominations can do in terms of representing progressive Christianity. Why is that? Denominate. I mean, every house of worship even has a mix of people within the pews. So whenever a pastor kind of speaks out, I'm always a little hesitant to be like, how, you know, how much are you reflecting all, you know, are you reflecting the majority of your members or you're certainly not probably on any kind of political or social issue reflecting all of the members. Um, there's, uh, 
freedom of uh, conscience within everybody in the congregation. And then with denominations, you see that uh, magnified by quite a bit that every denomination has a mix of people, congregate, you know, how specific congregations in the denomination, geographical differences, um, you know, at, uh, such a wide number of constituents that the denominational leaders and the people advocating for the denomination in uh, the public square, whether that's in DC or in states or in any forum, um, have to represent that uh, diversity. And so I think we, we need to be uh, recognized that there is a kind of progressive wing of all the denominations. So um, that, that there's a lot in common, even, um, you know, I think this is most acutely uh, seen in the Catholic church where you have a whole uh, millions and millions and millions of, of progressive Catholics that have real fundamental disagreements where, for instance, the Catholic church teaches about women in leadership um, and uh, a whole, you know, a number of different issues that people are still Catholic and disagree with the formal representatives of the Catholic church hierarchy in DC. And so I think there is a limit and a kind of um, a narrow denominationalism that I see where people are like, feel like maybe they're the outliers or on the edge of their own denominations when I see so much commonality. Um, and there's also theological diversity within denominations that we rarely recognize, but there's so much commonality uh, with the work I'm trying to do, which is uplift and amplify progressive Christians. And when you add up the kind of left wings of Baptist life, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Catholic, it's a pretty big group when you add up all those different wings of the different denominations. You wrote, uh, we desperately need a politic and theolo a theological vision, a language uh, focused on God-given dignity of every human being. Christians must advocate for a world where every person's dignity is recognized, and we must work together with people of all faiths and of no faith to bring this country and, and world into being. You know, some, some have made the argument that beyond abolishing Roe v. Wade, that conservative Christianity doesn't care much about human dignity, thus uh, supporting harsher immigration reform, abolishing the Affordable Health Care Act, and so on. Is this an, an, an inevitable and perpetual state of conservative Christianity in America, or is there a way to change that trajectory, or is it seem to be changing? I'm an optimistic person. I write, you know, in the in, end of the book, I think Christians are called to be the most kind of optimistic people, where we, we tell this amazing story of God's love and God's vision being more powerful than death, the, the hope of resurrection, the, the story that the empire, the religious and political leaders of Jesus' time couldn't kill him. They tried to crucify him and, um, you know, resurrection was more powerful. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for in, in every way, including that conservative Christians will recognize the kind of um, saying abortion is the only issue is um, a very destructive lens to view kind of um, our public square, the common good. And I'm, I'm actually, uh, there are signs of hope. You, you saw just this week, we're recording this podcast after this disastrous presidential debate where the sitting president 
of the United States would not condemn white supremacy. And the Southern Baptist Convention came out uh, yesterday and actually put out a very strong statement condemning white supremacy, which is a kind of gradual and, and noted in the statement the history of white supremacy in the Southern Baptist Convention's founding. And so that's that's some social progress. So I'm, I'm hopeful that over time uh, you will see even the more conservative, kind of mainstream conservative voices uh, in conservative Christianity kind of embrace a broader set of issues while there's, you know, while maintaining disagreement uh, about reproductive rights. And then I also will have experience, I've experienced this kind of Christian unity across the board on immigration reform, like I was mentioning earlier, where I worked very closely with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Catholic bishops, on passing what I think was a really good bill in 2013 through the United States Senate that that sadly did not get passed in the House and made into law, but got 68 votes. Now that's amazing unity in the Senate. (laughs) Republicans and Democrats coming together with the support of basically all the Christian groups, conservative, moderate, and progressive to create a pathway to to citizenship for the dreamers and reform our, our immigration system in a positive way. So that also gives me hope that people who maybe disagree about other things can find places uh, of agreement. I need more people like you in my life because I, I guess I'm a, an eternal pessimist when it comes to some of these things. <laughs> you know, I, I I came out of the Southern Baptist movement like many of our CBF uh, ministers, and and I I just you know I'm, I'm thinking back to this. Yeah, this is a wonderful statement to come out and condemn white supremacy, but this is, this is the same movement a couple of years ago when they were facing pressure around paying restitution to the black community, especially in Louisville, because the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, Southern was built, uh, some of their buildings were built by slaves, you know, that they had this great big old thing where they issued an apology and then brought out one of their black pastors to, I guess, accept the apology on behalf of all black people in America. Um, you know, so I, I guess, you know, I guess make me an optimist. Like, how do we create conversations? Uh, how do we create community among this theological divide among uh, American Christians to to make this change in our world, make this change within our country? Yeah, that's that was a great example, and so uh, dispiriting about Southern's um, fake kind of attempt at reconciliation, reckoning with its past you know, truth without reconciliation doesn't really, or reckoning uh, doesn't accomplish much. And so that was a a disgraceful kind of show of reckoning with the past that Southern did. And I guess I, I would separate I from my kind of optimism and hope of what can change. And realistically, I think it is very hard. And I um, am, I'm someone that sees like the glass 10% full and I recognize in this case, um, there uh, it's it's not necessarily like I'm saying there's hope of like uh, great dialogue. And actually on immigration, it's been very sad to see this kind of bipartisan consensus uh, about a pathway to, to citizenship kind of dissolve because of uh, President Trump and people being 
unwilling to criticize Trump and his kind of uh, really anti-immigrant xenophobic language. But I would say I feel compelled that all of my social change advocacy is rooted in the ability of it, of like a, a possible better future. And so it's what kind of drives me in, in a lifetime of advocacy. It's what I saw drive my parents. I grew up the son of two labor union organizers in Texas and doing labor union organizing in Texas is difficult. And I just saw them do what they could every day uh, during their jobs and uh, think that something positive um, could come out of it. And we don't know what kind of our laboring, we don't know what the, when the harvest is gonna uh, come, but I just feel called to believe that that positive social change is possible. I think it comes, I think we would go a long way if we kind of said, um, and I realize everyone listening to this has different beliefs on every issue we've talked about during this podcast, but starting from a place of this is what I believe and inviting people to have real dialogue across difference and respecting that people come from it from a place of uh, authenticity and conviction. I, I think from if I had one word to conservative Christians, uh, it would be respect that progressive Christians take the Bible seriously and take their uh, Christian commitment seriously. I hear so many people write off progressive Christians like we're giving into the culture or, or not biblical or you know all these different slurs people come up with. I think it'd go a long way if uh, we say we read the Bible very differently and have different com- and draw different conclusions, but that maybe we could have some dialogue if we actually sat down together and respected that we're just um, have different beliefs, but that they're sincerely held. Just to be clear, um, all listeners have to sign a doctrinal statement to agree with all of my theological stances. So everybody should be uniform uh, in this this conversation. It's such a it's such a weird thing. People actually for us. respond. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just play. Um, you know, it it's such a weird state for us to be in right now because. I feel like our churches are reflecting the greater political divide, you know, at, at stake that we're just at this point that we're so entrenched in our perspectives that we're not giving any ground. And I just think like a personal example, just this week of following your interview on CNN and to have, you know, this person on Twitter blast you at, you know, I'm going to listen to quote the Christian perspective from this quote, gay guy. I just, I, I, I'm a little cynical when it comes to us coming to the table and, and maybe I need to be more prayerful in my, in my life to have hope in this. And, and there's a statement you made in the book that I, I feel like it gives us that vision. It gives us that place to, to go towards. Um, uh, when you wrote, uh, we uh, can enact a politics of blessing and love in our society that through collective action, seeks to take the burden off of everyone Jesus has blessed. Um, maybe take us a little bit deeper there and, and what your hope for this book and your hope for for readers. I guess, let me, I, I, also, I often can despair, and, and this week especially has been a point of despair because of the, the debate we watched, which was just so hard to watch, I'm sure. 
for everybody, no matter what you believe. It was it was hard to watch. And then we saw a non-indictment um, of the police officers here in Louisville who killed Breonna Taylor. And um, it is it is a, a time to despair. And I would say I think what what gets me out of that is finding some connect some point of agreement with somebody. Um, for instance. Uh, I was just, I, I often despair about our two senators here in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. But then I, what, what helps me personally, my spiritual practice is thinking Rand Paul is very opposed to the endless wars that the United States is fighting with no reason or purpose in the Middle East. And so I kind of, I, I come, if I can find that point of gratitude um, for at least one thing that the person is doing, that, that helps me kind of lessen some of my despair as, as just a spiritual practice. And then my hope for the book is that it will start conversations and help people feel less alone, whether that's as a Baptist. Uh, whenever, I, you know, I've, I've been talking about this book and people are like, the feeling of feeling alone as a Christian is particularly hard for progressive Baptists in a country that maybe has negative connotations about being a Christian, but then really negative connotations about being Baptist. And so I, I hope people will see that there are other progressive Baptists, progressive Christians out there, and that will bring them some sense of comfort and feeling less defensive about their engagement um, in church. And maybe even in their own church, they feel very lonely. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and, you know, you feel like what, you know, the kind of social and political commitments your own pastors or your own denomination have don't fit your own views. And so I hope you know there are other people in that position. There are other churches and denominations that don't feel that, you know, their views are reflected in that when they talk about their faith, people are drawing the opposite conclusions. Um, I talk about the in the book being out like uh, at a gay bar in New York City and people telling people I'm in seminary in New York City and people being like, what? And yet at the same time, there's a church in the village in New York City, which is a big gay neighborhood for those listeners not familiar with New York City. And there was a church right there, a Methodist church that hosted the first meeting of PFLAG, parents and families of lesbians and gays. In at the church hosted the first meeting in 1973, right after Stonewall. So from the very beginning, actually before the LGBTQ rights movement, there have been Christians involved in the movement. And so this idea that like, what, you're in seminary and gay? It's like, yes, I get it. And I get where it's coming from, but it's also ahistorical. And it's also not reflective of all the LGBTQ people who are Christians and were involved in the, and churches that were involved in the movement for our rights from the very beginning. So I'd say we're not alone, feel less defensive. And also I hope the I'm very excited when people say their their church is going to do a like book study or read in their Bible study class because I really hope people will share their own experiences, how they found um, you know community with other progressive Christians, and then what they're you know the second half of the book about kind of what we can do to reclaim our faith in the public square and that's only a, a no one's going to be able to do that alone no person no church no denomination it's something we all have to do in community. So since you said that you lead a Sunday school class, are you going to kind of pull like a lot of professors do and require that uh, the members of your class, you know, read your book and and you lead a study on it? I always I have those professors that, that, you know, they forced you to read their book for class. 
I hated that. And these professors would give us these obscure books they wrote that cost like a hundred dollars. Yes. <laughs> um, I was so annoyed by that. I actually, we did a study already on it while I was writing it. It was actually very helpful because I would have to finish the chapter in time for my Bible study class to discuss it. So it was also in that way, I put them through reading not entirely finished drafts as a way of helping me write the book. Uh, so they've already uh, read it. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful to, we just had this discussion about the book yesterday on Facebook Live through the church. If you're interested in learning more, um, you can go to Highland Baptist Church's Facebook page and find a recording of that. But uh, it is, ex- I, I, I do feel very welcomed into Baptist life and very warmly received um, and kind of, uh, it's nice to, to not have to fight or be kind of uh, just be warmly welcomed and, and, you know, welcomed into the life of the church. I love that you had a focus group. Uh, you know, and, and it writing. Was a yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. You got to, you know, work through it and edit and, and all those things. Yeah. All those professors that made you buy the hundred dollar books. Uh, I tell you the best route after the, the class was done was, and I still do this to this day is uh, I turn around and sell those books on Amazon uh, seller account, you know, for like $20 less than what they're selling it on there. So get it off your hands. So uh, that's another conversation for another time. All right. If you want to stay connected with Guthrie, you can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, of course, go out and purchase Just Faith wherever books are sold. Guthrie, thank you for making time for this conversation. And thank you for challenging us to consider a politics of blessing and love that lifts the burden off everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, I'm excited to be a part of CBF Life. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.